0: giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now.
1: I'm a big fan of just nut butters of all kinds, but Nutella is obviously like the (laughs) holy
2: grail of nut butters. You know, it's the best one. Oh my God. I've always felt like the word, the phrase nut butter just sounds so a little bit illicit, and I love that. Nuts, (laughs) you know.
1: Nuts are a little sexual.
2: Yes. From Transmitter Media, this is Rebel Eaters Club, and I'm your host, Virgie Tovar. Today, we'll be eating Nutella with a really good friend of mine, Isabel Fox and Duke. I've known Isabel for almost a decade. We're neighbors now. And on a nice San Francisco day, you can find us walking around in the park discussing Pema Chodron. We both talk with our hands and are known to fling a crumb or two while eating treats and talking loudly about how much we hate diet culture. Beyond being my friend, Isabel is kind of a big deal. She's a health coach who helps her clients break out of cycles of binging and restricting so they can finally make peace with food. I am so thrilled to talk with her today. Now, let's get back to the Nutella. I went to the, I walked down to like the little co-op down the street and they had like the, they had just gotten the bread delivery. So I got this like, Sweet, warm baby loaf of—it's called like duca. It's like a duca bread, and it's got seeds all over it. And it was like so dense and delicious. So I got that. I cut it up into. I really love cutting my own bread into like really fat slices. Oh, that sounds um, amazing! Yeah, the, yeah. Then, oh, is, is the warm is it
1: like the spongy, warm, fluffy yeah, kind spongy. of bread? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's That's like spongy
2: up. and dense. And mm. I love that. And then it's got like a nice crunch, which I, I'm going gonna, gonna to crunch it in a minute. But also, yeah, I just slathered Nutella on it and then cut up some banana, put nice. that on top. And it was just, oh, so good. Should we share a bite together? Normally, I do let's a countdown. Do okay, let's okay. do it. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Here we go. Okay, three, two, one. no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yep. yep. Okay, here we go. Oh, go. I know. Okay, we have to get the full. Yeah.
1: Mm, I like that. Okay, very good.
2: So tell
1: us about why we're eating Nutella. I always just thought that Nutella was like the ultimate symbol of like bad foods that people Mm. like avoid in diet culture. You know, it was like the holy grail of that. It was the ultimate Creamy, fatty, sugar, you know, everything that was villainized mm. in diet culture, like felt to be embodied by Nutella. Um, so, yeah, so it's the best, obviously. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> yes. yes, yes. So the first time you encounter Nutella, I want to go back to that moment or the first time you remember.
1: I remember really
2: discovering, I went to France one summer. I did like
1: a teen tour in France when I was 13. I remember going to France and it being everywhere and thinking like, this is the best food that ever existed. I was definitely attached to this really happy memory of just being like a free kid running around like, being almost spoiled. Right. I mean, really, I'm like in France, I'm 13 years old and I'm eating Nutella <laughs> crepes. I mean, you know, it's like really <laughs> the ultimate decadent experience that food represents that whole trip, that whole experience of my life. And I had loves in France. I had my 13 year old love in France. Oh. I think I had my first kiss in France that summer, maybe my first like real like makeout. you know, French, Uh Frenched. And and so there was just like a lot of, you know. And so there was just a lot of really positive, you know, feelings about that trip. I do remember coming back though and freaking out that I had gained weight. And I remember thinking, like, well, it's because of all the Nutella that I ate, the villainization of Nutella was like very quickly attached to the joy of Nutella, right? I don't, I don't really remember ever thinking the Nutella was really okay because by that age, by the age where I really discovered Nutella, I was already pretty entrenched in diet culture. I was probably already, I think I had like a full-blown eating disorder at that point already, but I, I, yeah, so There was no time where I really felt Nutella was a safe food, but I remember always thinking it was the fucking best food, you know?
2: My first encounter with Nutella was also abroad. Um, I was 16 years old. I was visiting extended family. Uh, it was like kind of, you know, my grandmother had been waiting until I was 16 to sort of take me on an identity pilgrimage to Mexico so that I could meet our extended family. So I was in the town where my grandfather grew up, which is called San Luis Potosí in Mexico. And um, my, we like, I don't know if he was my uncle or what, he was like some kind of relation. And he brought home a jar of Nutella as sort of just a hospitality gesture. And I remember, you know, I was like, what is this? Right? Um, And then I put a spoon in it and it was like, fireworks are going off it's like the scene in a movie where you're like you see your first love and you're like oh my god it's happening in my mouth and i ate the whole jar that day like they were like you know that i think the next morning they're like where's the nutella go and i'm like whoops um whoops. so it was de- <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes so I was like, and then i have one so so i hadn't i mean I think that also what's interesting when you're talking about going to France, like my next, my next chapter of Nutella history, you know, novel or whatever is I'm studying abroad in Italy and I have decided to turn this short term study abroad into a diet, right? Like I, I think that I was yeah, so drawn yeah, in by the sense. idea that you could go overseas and then after like a few weeks or a few months come back and be completely transformed. Yes. You know, like to the to the point that no one no one can even recognize you like your friends and your family are like who's that? And you're like, it's me, right? Um, and um, and Did so you not Italy, do this
1: every summer, like every summer yeah. break, every yes. it right, was all it was always that fantasy, every single time you were gonna be like away, and then you'd come back, a new
2: person, yeah. Right, and it never happened, as we know, as diet cultures always always be disappointing us, right? Totally, um. totally. <laughs> but I'm like, in Italy, literally basically starving myself, some friends are like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And I'm like, you're just jealous. I'm incapable. I'm like completely, completely in like, I don't know, I'm in like the sunken place with my fat phobia, right? And I cannot understand these people's gestures of care as anything but jealousy. But then, you know, we're in Italy, people like the other people in the house I'm sharing with, you know, I'm 18 years old, we're sharing a house, like eight people or something. And someone always had Nutella in the, you know, in like the kitchen and of course in my moments where I would like you know could not just starve myself endlessly I would just find the jar of new. Nut- I would like sniff it out like a truffle pig and yeah, like yeah. I would just eat I would just eat as much like again sometimes a whole jar and yeah um, yeah and then like being called and then somebody being like, did someone eat my Nutella? And everyone knowing that it was me because I was like doing all this wild, insane food restrictions, stuff yeah. <laughs> and then pretending that it wasn't me and then finally yeah. caving out of shame and being like, I did eat it. I'm sorry. I'll replace your Nutella. And Oof. then it all started over again. It's about like it was like a horrible – it was like Oof. that horrible cycle. And I think, right, like, and this kind of is starting to pivot into what you do, right? Like, of course, we have this sense that we're monsters, that we're terrible. But then, you know, we realize that this kind of behavior is actually completely in line with what dieting and food restriction does to a person. Yeah, completely. I want to get into that more in a second. Um, we, we've known each other for a long time, but you've never told me. We've never had that moment where you tell me how, what your relationship to diet culture was like, how you ended up the path to becoming a health coach who works with people who are recovering from um, chronic restriction or disordered eating.
1: So I you know, had been a sort of classic diet binge cycler. I was put on my first diet by my pediatrician when I was three. And I remember my mom lovingly refers to this diet as the broccoli and skim milk diet. I was like high on the baby BMI scale. I was like, you know, whatever. And the pediatrician said, oh, you got to watch her weight. You got to be careful. And uh, so I don't have a memory of not being on a diet. As far back as I have consciousness, I always just had this experience of myself as somebody who wanted more than I was supposed to have. And I loved food too much. And my desires around food were not good. And I had to actively sit on my hands and try not to eat because, you know, if I ate what I really wanted, I would be fat. We all got this message. You didn't have to have a fat phobic pediatrician to get the message that this was bad. It wasn't just about health. Come on. I mean, it was a lovability issue. It was a social issue. I remember I did have this feeling of like if I was thinner, I'd be more popular. More people would love me. I'd get the boys to like me. And I had crushes going back to like the age of five. And I thought that thinness was the um, the thing that was missing in my life. As sort of like this like white upper middle class girl, that seemed like the only thing that maybe was the problem. Like, it's like, well, yeah, if I'm thin, I'm just going to have everything. Life would be perfect when I was thin, right? I would get everything. I'd have all the attention. I'd have everything that I wanted. And that, that fundamentally my body and my appetite, right?, was my biggest problem. And so I spent my entire childhood into my adolescence trying to control my appetite, but not being able to, then hating myself for not being able to, then trying harder the next day, and then not being falling again, even more intensely. The more I would restrict, the more I would binge, the more I would hate myself, the more I would try to restrict until eventually you do get into like real clinical eating disorder behaviors. I mean, I remember... Uh, being so desperate, right? I mean, I was, I think I was throwing up my food by age 10 or 11. And so this went on throughout my whole childhood into adolescence through high school and college. Um, and then I remember, so I even mean, at some point, I, you know, discovered stimulants, right? Appetite suppressants, cocaine, Adderall, and that really was the only time I was ever able to actually lose a significant amount of weight and quote unquote, stick to my diet was when I was using drugs. And that very quickly landed me into rehab. So I was 19 when I went to rehab for an eating disorder and eating disorder slash cocaine, whatever. It was really just basically an eating disorder. And I was like, this is so great. I'm going to go to treatment and they're going to teach me how to not binge without drugs i remember being in the intake and i said if you can teach me how to control my weight without coke i'll quit tomorrow i will have i will give up drugs tomorrow if you can teach me how to control my weight without it and they said yep we can do that and when I was in treatment, and this was like a fancy rich girl rehab, right? I mean, this was like the highest level luxury health care you could be getting. I think my parents, my mother spent $100,000 on treatments for me that year. And there, and And what I got was, I mean, I got clean, right? I mean, I was in an environment where I couldn't do drugs, so I did get clean. But, you know, functionally what they were doing with food is they just put me on a meal plan that was less food than my body actually needed because the meal plan was designed to keep me in the BMI range. Right, right. Not to heal
2: you, but to keep you in the range. To
1: keep me in the BMI range, right? There was no real rehab. There was no like, you know, we had group therapy where we would talk about our feelings, but then we'd have to go eat our meal plan calorie allotment. And that was the treatment. And I remember, you know, kind of coming out of rehab And I was like, what's, you know, what's the aftercare plan? And they would say, go to OA, go to Overeaters Anonymous and stick to your meal plan and, you know, work with a nutritionist or whatever, you know, like have a nutritionist watch over your meal plan essentially, right? Like, so I came back and I was working with a nutritionist and, and when I worked with the nutritionist, it was the same thing. It was all about, she would weigh me every week and like adjust. We'd talk about what I was eating and we would adjust the food to keep me in the weight range. It was all about keeping me in the weight range. So um I, again, very quickly after getting out of rehab, could not stick to any kind of meal plan. I had the same problem. Nothing changed. I wasn't doing drugs, which was good, but I could not stick to my meal plan. And And I realized, I think, like, I remember being in an Overeaters Anonymous meeting and I met someone who is, like, to this day, one of my best friends in the entire world. And she somehow came across a Janine Roth book. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Janine Roth? Yes, yes. Yeah. So she came across a Janine Roth book. And this was my first introduction to the concept of intuitive eating. This was my first introduction to the concept that you have hunger signals, that you have a body that gives you information about what it needs, I didn't know that. I thought that what your body needs is whatever it needs to stay in the weight range. The idea that I was supposed to listen to my hunger and fullness, that was was, like important, was pretty new. (laughs) The idea was if you're listening to your hunger signals correctly, right? If you're really waiting until you're hungry and really stopping when you're full, you will be thin. That was the message. So, this is what I call the intuitive eating diet or the hunger and fullness diet. And I became totally like, you know, pretty obsessed with the hunger and fullness diet, but I would fall off of it. I couldn't stick to the hunger and fullness diet either. Sure. You know, I would eat way past the point of full in quotes, and I would eat when I quote unquote wasn't hungry, whatever that means, all the time, right? So I couldn't stick to the hunger and fullness diet. And then, I I mean, I went through many different iterations of the hunger and fullness diet. At one point, I was involved with the way down diet, really Super very intense Christian group. This church that basically um, it's a lot of like pray to God to not eat when you're not hungry because when you want to eat when you're not hungry that's like a spiritual malady, right? And so I was even so, like involved. a weight
2: loss church.
1: It's a weight loss church. Yeah, wow. it's a weight loss church. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, The It's it's it, there's a documentary about this. It's actually quite disturbing. It, it's a pretty much it's a cult. I didn't realize how culty it was when I was doing it because I wasn't. Actively in the church. I was just, you know, buying all the programs and reading all the books, you know. And I remember you're supposed to wait until you have a growl in your stomach to eat. And if you eat before you have a growl in your stomach, that's a sin. Wow. 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 Very intense. I mean, I was starving myself. It's a starvation program. And I remember having a huge binge eating episode. I was like, couldn't hang on any longer, binged my face off. It was like, 4 days in the fetal position could barely very physically uncomfortable like low bottom binge eating where i like call had to call in sick from work because i was so full and stuffed that i just could not really breathe or move i felt like i was in the depths of hell i'm sitting there like sweating so full so uncomfortable Calling in sick from work. And I'm just like, I call it like my final, my final binge. I'm just not in control of my food. I can't do it. I can't get up and try again tomorrow. I can't. It was like a surrender moment of like, perhaps I'm just a person who's going to have a jar of Nutella and I can't do anything about it because every time I try, I end up here and I can't be here anymore. I cannot be like, face down in my bed hating myself because I fell off the wagon. I don't have the energy to keep trying to control my food. And so I just gave up. I gave up. I was like, screw it. If I gain weight, I gain weight. If I eat whatever, I eat whatever, I can't think about this anymore. I can't have my life revolve around this anymore. I'm just gonna let myself just eat and whatever whatever my weight will be will be. And the magical thing that happened was I ate, I gained weight, but I never had a four day bender where I just wanted to die ever again after that. You know, like it was like the really intense binge eating episodes that the hardcore diet binge cyclers have experienced. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. That never happened to me again. Did I have days where I had a jar of Nutella? Absolutely. I could still have that day, you know? Stabilized, normalized food doesn't look like what diet culture tells you it's going to look like.
2: Right, right, right. And I feel like you and I have talked about this. I don't know if you've quite called it radical hopelessness. Yes. But I think there is a rock bottom. The gift bottom of is- hopelessness. The gift of hopelessness. <laughs> yes. I was- People, yes. Yeah.
1: Giving up was the best thing that ever happened to me. That was the healing. Giving up the hope of dieting will ever work for me.
3: I've interviewed many successful people over the years. And one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase Mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now.
2: I kind of want to talk a little bit about some of the points on the journey, like one of them being, I mean, right, you can be eating in a way that where you do not feel controlled by food, and that could look a lot of different ways. Some yes. days it can look like the jar of Nutella. Some days it looks like whatever. Some days, you know what I mean? It can look right. a lot of different ways. The other thing is at the end of, you know – creating a relationship with food that is peaceful and not adversarial or that like it is as joyful and peaceful as possible like in in the context of such an anxiety-ridden food phobic culture at the end of that there is no guarantee of what kind of body you're going to have at the end of that you can be complete you can have this beautiful wonderful i would use the word healthy relationship to food, and you could be a thin person, you could be a fat person. You know, I mean, like, It's like yeah. all over. There's no guarantees on this. And yeah. I think that that's really scary for a lot of people. And I think for a lot of people, it can be really liberating and normal. I, mean, I think for me, it felt really liberating, like, oh, this is the body I'm supposed to have. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think going back to sort of Uh, Radical hopelessness can look like that moment, you know, where you're in the fetal position and you have to call out of work. It can also be the moment where you sort of have to come to terms with the fact that you ultimately can't control the size of your body. Pretty much, unless you want to, unless you want this to run your entire life. Right. And I'm curious about, like, you know, I, as a coach, I know you have brought people to the gift of hopelessness or helped them, (laughs) ushered them to there. And I'm curious, like, what is that like for people? Is that something? I mean, talk about the gift of hopelessness. (laughs)
1: I mean, the gift of hopelessness is the most – it is the core of my teaching. I really think that, like, if your, like, number one goal is I just don't want to have an eating disorder anymore. Like, I don't want to have this, like, crazy relationship with food anymore. Once you really get to the point where you're like, I just can't diet. I am hopeless on dieting. I am hopeless on trying to control my food, trying to control my body. That's when the real healing comes with food, right? Like, that's when you're like, okay, food's just going to be food. It's going to be what it's going to be. This is what we call acceptance, body acceptance. I can still struggle with my body image. I can still struggle with fat phobia on any number of levels. But fundamentally, if you are hopeless on dieting, saving you from that pain, that's your food is just going to be your food, right? Now, here's the problem, I think, with hopelessness is that hope grows back, If I'm really struggling with my body image, if I'm having pain around my body-related trauma in some way, all of the sudden dieting seems like maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe if I just do this, well, I'm not going to go back to that crazy dieting. I'm just going to be like a little dieting or I'm just going to be like a little. (laughs) You know? like It's fine. right? Dieting is the real coping mechanism, right? People talk a big game about emotional eating or whatever. Like you want to know what's really hard? Giving up dieting when you're in pain about your body, when you're having emotional pain about your body-related trauma.
2: This is the thing. And this is what I've been trying to, you know, more and more tell people. Is I'm like, you know, Isabel, like you're using the word hope. I might use the word you're triggered, right? We think of dieting as like healthful behavior. We think of that moment when we want to get thin as Optimization. I'm like, no, it's all just you being triggered. Yeah. When you restrict, it's be, it's a reaction. It's what yes. you've been taught to do yes. to cope when you are triggered. To your point around the pain that you have been taught that something's wrong with your body, something's yeah. wrong with how you eat. So, I mean, I think right. you know because I'm, I'm- and there's a reason for that. There's a biological
1: reason for that, actually. So when we are in fight or flight, when we are in anxious, when we are in trauma response, we literally our brains start to look for how do i get out of this pain right what can i get control over biologically part of what that is is you start to develop something called threat bias which means you're looking for problems to solve what can i control what can i you know do to to make myself safer and so dieting is like in the absence of an obvious solution to my problem dieting is just this like always there in this corner of like, oh, this is something you could control, right? Well, just lose a little weight, you know? Well, your body, your body is always something you can try to control, right? It's just kind of like I'm having difficult feelings and I'm just in them and there's really nothing to be done about it other than just be with my feelings. If I'm trying to escape those difficult feelings, but I don't really have a real solution to that problem, all of a sudden, like any control mechanism out there will start to look, feel like a good idea. And sometimes this could could be, you know, the pain might come from like actual fat phobia in the world. But, you know, even if you're just an anxious person, right, it's this projection of like all of my anxiety onto my body as the thing to control, to take me out of this pain that I'm in.
2: Does that kind of make sense? Yes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, it feels unsafe to be in my body. What can I do to escape from this, get a sense of control over this feeling, which feels very overwhelming. I mean, absolutely. Right. Right. And I think, again, there's this idea that You talk about this a lot, the idea of a lot of people think of an eating disorder as something that is sort of self-contained. Like there is something wrong with me. There is something wrong with my relationship to food or my relationship to my body. Without understanding this is happening in an ecosystem where all of these things end up becoming inevitable for a certain percentage of the population.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that every diet, 95% of dieters by definition are dealing with this up and down. This is most people's experience in some way or another, right? I think some people have, more severe ups and downs and they usually just match the degree to which we're restricting or making ourselves wrong or being perfectionistic with food or whatever. I call it diet binge cycling physics. The farther I pull the bow back on the bow and arrow, the farther it's going to fly in the other direction the second I let it go. And then it's like, oh shit, it flew in the other direction. Let me pull, 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 pull pull, pull myself back. Right. And then it just keeps happening. And this is, this is diet binge cycling classically defined. Um, and most people are experiencing this, the, the small group of people who are not experiencing this, who are successfully sitting on their hands and really, you know, holding it down for years on end. That's when you start to really see symptoms of clinically restrictive eating disorders like anorexia. Mm. Um, so, you know, I always, I'm like, I do not feel jealous anymore. I did. I used to. I used to feel jealous of people that could restrict, that had the capacity to restrict. I'd be like, I would, what's wrong with me? I never I never thought I had an eating disorder because I wasn't capable of maintaining restriction and I would be jealous. Yeah, similar, similar. me too. Now I realize actually the folks who are really capable of long-term restriction are often in more pain than anyone else because that I mean, there's no relief. It's constant self-denial and self-harm with zero relief. Binges are fundamentally relieving. They are mm. medicinal. They are actually yeah. a healthy response to deprivation. Yes. Thank God for my binges because they kept me alive. They kept me out of the hospital. Mm.
2: I mean, I can feel that in my whole body. What you're talking about is binging, is healthy responses, normal responses self-care in some way, you know, I think it's so, it's so difficult in this moment to understand things like something like quote unquote binging, um, which is so deeply shamed and pathologized in our culture to actually sort of see it as like, you know, um, as an act of, of self-care is your body sort of coming in and, um, taking over and, and helping you survive. And I, I don't think we have the space right now to even think of how amazing that is.
1: It's a, I mean, yeah, I have an enormous amount of gratitude now for that. And, you know, really, it's a massive shift of consciousness to think that my desires for food are good, that my desires for food are healthy Mm. and keep me alive, that my desires for food are fundamentally safety mechanisms.
2: Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. 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 I mean, I've just been thinking. I mean, for me, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I, am always like, I don't like the. Quote unquote healthy, quote unquote unhealthy eating binary. I'm like, anything I'm like, fundamentally, right? When we're talking about the vi- the bare minimum, anything that is there to help you survive that's going to keep you alive. I would say is in the healthy camp, right? Like, yeah. if you're absolutely not eating, right? Yeah. I'm like, it, and so I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I always have trouble with those kinds of binaries, but you know what? Let, let's talk a little bit about. Um, sort of fat phobia and what that looks like, you know, when you're working with a client who maybe is a thin bodied person versus a larger bodied person, um, you know, like a thin person can have an extremely high level of um, body dysmorphia, which is very unpleasant, but may not be dealing with, you know, likely is not dealing with Structural, cultural fat phobia. I'm just thinking about yeah. like when you're working with a thin client versus a fat client who might be facing fat phobia. I mean, what like what's the difference in those two trajectories?
1: I mean, obviously, the challenges that a fat person is facing in terms of externalized or institutional or interpersonal fat phobia are just going to be structurally and fundamentally different. They're just dealing with, you know, so so if you think about like fat phobia can be broken down into institutional, interpersonal and intrapersonal. Right. Yes. A thin person is not dealing with institutional fat phobia. They just do not they're completely they've the privilege of just never having to deal with that particular set of challenges. Um the interpersonal fat phobia that they're dealing with is also probably quite reduced. That being said, I think what's complicated for thin people is that even thin people are not necessarily immune from having had fat phobic experiences in childhood, and also witnessing fat phobia and and seeing how people get treated differently on the basis of body size. It's like thin people still like see that and they like kind of internalize the fear of fat, even if they're not experiencing the fat phobia. So it is undoubtedly clear that larger people are dealing with way more shit than thin people in terms of the challenges that they need to overcome because they're also potentially also dealing with the anxiety. That's the other thing about, um, you know, living in a fat body, you're dealing with all of the institutional fat phobia, all the interpersonal fat phobia, all the stuff. And you may also have trauma and anxiety and things that predispose you to disordered eating, even if you weren't in a fat body, right? So it's like a triple action threat potentially happening, um, but yeah, it just gets like really murky, like where the line is, I guess, between am I totally projecting something irrational onto my body? Is this like, oh, you have an eating disorder because it's really about something else. It's not really about fat phobia. It's just, you know, you're projecting, you know, your anxiety and your trauma onto your body. Or does having had experience of fat phobia in childhood or having a mother who was a dieter who was constantly, you know, putting herself down or having a mother who constantly put you down, even if you were in a, you know, thin body. I mean, it's just, the line starts to get really weird in terms of what's caused by quote unquote active external fat phobia and what's an anxious or trauma response projection. And like making a distinction between those two is really hard to do because, no matter what body you live in, you still live in a fat phobic culture.
2: Does that kind right. of make sense? Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, right? I use the I use the I often use the metaphor of like breaking up and diet culture as your ex. And I'm like, I think what's hard about diet culture, unlike a lot of other um types of trauma, uh, is that you know, some trauma is safely in your rear view mirror. You can deal with it. And you can kind of tell yourself, I'm never gonna be like if it happened as a kid, I'm never gonna be five years old that you know, I'm right. never gonna be dependent on my parents in that exact same way. But with right. fat phobia and working through food issues and body anxiety, it's like running into your ex. Every damn day, like everywhere you go, your ex is like there, and so you're trying to heal while also actively running into them when you're grocery shopping, when you're going to get coffee, when you're going to get your Nutella, when you're trying to go on a date with someone else, right? Like, right? Exactly. That's that's what's that's one of the biggest challenges I think. Right about the recovery is that the trauma. It's like my my friend. My friend once told me, you can forgive someone who has slapped you in the past, but you cannot forgive someone who is still slapping you. Yes. I think that is what's so hard. It's like, we're still getting slapped. It's really hard to forgive ourselves, let alone anything, (laughs) when we're still actively in this place where we're getting lambasted all the time, you know? Right. So this is
1: where, I mean, a good portion of my work, and this is, you know, with – People of all body sizes, right? A good portion of my work is when it comes to just dealing with the culture, right? Is where can I realistically protect myself? Are there boundaries that I can realistically input to keep to protect myself from the culture, right? Like maybe I don't talk to my fat phobic mother. Maybe I don't, you know, follow the Kardashians on Instagram, right? Like there are, what can I? actively do? What is a realistic thing that I can do to divorce myself and take myself out of that kind of violent environment? But then realistically, you're going to come up short there, right? So then what's the game plan then? And and, I mean, I would argue probably, uh, you know, a big part of it is like repair, right? Like being able to like self-soothe and like, you know, how can I self-care after I'm harmed? Um, Yes. When harm is not avoidable, I have a lot of clients whose spouses are really fat phobic. Spouses right. who are, you know, basically threatening them with, you know, I-, I need you to be losing weight. I mean, that's a really difficult. You have children, mm. you have a family. I mean, that is a heartbreaking situation. It's like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. So, yes. you know, working with people around. You know, what are the boundaries that you personally feel comfortable setting? Like, what are your lines in the sand where you can remove yourself from toxicity? And where, you know, for whatever reason you may be deciding to stay in an environment that may be fat phobic because of these other things, right? It just gets really it's a lot. But yeah, what can I do to change my environment? Where can I set boundaries in my environment? And where do I need to like? How can I take care of myself when I am
2: exposed to fat phobia in a way that harms me? Yeah, 100%. Okay, so actually I just have one last question for you, Isabel. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay, I want you to pretend that you're traveling. You're in the future. Okay, if you, you're. I don't know how long in the future, but it's a time when you can look back at what we're all living through around diet culture and food and bodies. Okay, and it, it's you're you're safely that's safely in the past. We're no longer doing that. What is your future self saying about this very moment, like 2022 that we're living in now, when it comes to like how we deal with food and body and You know, I
1: think that honestly, I just have so much compassion. Like when I think about that, when I think about Mm -hmm. like looking back on history and thinking about that must've been so hard and so painful and it makes me so sad. And I just, it's like my heart breaks and, but there's like a real, it's just compassion. Like I just feel so much Mm -hmm. compassion. And That's like one of the most important tools you could have, I think, in this process on this journey is just really looking at your diet recovery journey through the lens of compassion, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: looking at your body image challenges through the lens of compassion of like, none of this is your fault. How can you just really like love yourself and be compassionate towards yourself through this like violence that we're experiencing Mm -hmm. as a collective?
2: Mm, mm, yes. I mean, I absolutely love that. I absolutely agree. Um, Isabel, thank you for being on Rebel Eaters Club. Thank you for having
1: me. This is so special. I'm like, I feel like it's such a special kinship with you. And it's like, it's just a treat. It's really a treat.
2: Ah, oh, same, same. And thank you for sharing some Nutella banana business with me. <laughs> <Thank>
1: you. <laughs> Anytime you want to share a Nutella banana. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> wow okay let's take a moment to contemplate radical hopelessness yes that moment when you understand that dieting just doesn't work that it will never work that it's not your fault and your body will just be the weight that it wants to be that is a moment of power. As Isabel just taught us, dieting is the real coping mechanism. Most of us need help coping. How can we trade out dieting for something that doesn't eat our souls, though? I personally recommend thrifting, watercolors, and perfecting your heckling skills. If you have thoughts on the conversation you just heard, or even if you just want to say hi, reach out via social media. DM me at DM the show's producers at Transmitter Pods or shoot us a message at rebeleatersclub at gmail.com. Rebel Eaters Club is brought to you by Transmitter Media. This episode was produced by Shoshi Shvolovitz. Sarah Nix is Transmitter's executive editor. Wilson Sayre is our managing producer. And Greta Cohn is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Virgie Tobar. Rick Kwan is our mix engineer. And thanks to Taka Yasuzawa, who wrote some of the music we use in the show. If you love Rebel Eaters Club, tell your friends and share the love by writing a review on your favorite podcast app. See you next week.